0: Hello and welcome. I'm Lynn Fries, producer of Global Political Economy, or GPE News Talks. This is a report on a conversation with Prabhat Patnik on why capitalism is going to be finding it very difficult to come to terms with a post-COVID-19 world. Prabhat Patnik is a professor emeritus of economics at Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. An eminent and prolific economist, Patnik's published work includes books like The Value of Money and Accumulation and Stability Under Capitalism. In a forthcoming book titled Capital and Imperialism, to be released in February, co-authors Prabhat Patnik and Utsa Patnak will publish their comprehensive survey of capitalism's colonialist roots and uncertain future. We go now to our conversation with Professor Prabhat Patnik. Prabhat, what I want to get at in this conversation is why the working population is being pushed into acute distress and unemployment and insecurity. You've long argued that capitalism throughout the entire era of globalization under neoliberalism has been characterized by a conflict between the interests of finance and working people. And with COVID-19, this is intensifying. So we're going to be talking about that. And let's start with one of the main pillars of neoliberal policy, the withdrawal of the state from demand
1: management. Yes, I mean, I think the main aspect of the current neoliberal policy is the globalization of finance. Under the Bretton Woods system, countries imposed capital controls. In fact, you know, even European countries had very strict capital controls. Capital could not come in and go out as it wished. And therefore, these capital controls included also financial controls. Now, one thing which has happened, which is, I think, the crux of the current neoliberal globalization is the removal of capital controls and therefore the freedom of finance to move around globally. Now, if finance moves around globally, but we have nation states, in that case, the nation states lose their autonomy. They have to do what finance wants them to do, because otherwise finance would, in fact, flow out in the country, causing a bankruptcy of that particular country. They forever have to be very careful that they do nothing to offend finance. Now for any state intervention in raising demand, it is important that state expenditure be financed either through a fiscal deficit or by taxing the rich or taxing the capital. But either of these are disliked by finance. And therefore, in a world in which finance has the upper hand, the state simply lacks the instruments through which it can actually intervene in raising the level of aggregate demand. And that is exactly what has happened. Namely, that fiscal policy for raising aggregate demand is out. The only thing the state is allowed to do is to use monetary policy. But monetary policy is an extremely blunt instrument that predictably has not been very successful which is why the capitalist countries have been caught in a protracted crisis starting from 2008 itself.
0: You basically say that to view the neoliberal state as withdrawing in favor of the market is misleading, that the state is acting in accordance with the demands of international finance capital and the domestic corporate financial oligarchy integrated with it and it's promoting, rather than restraining, the spontaneity of the capitalist system. Is that right?
1: That's right. You see, basically the conclusion which people had come to in the 1930s, depression, for instance, Keynes argued that capitalism, save in exceptional circumstances, is saddled with mass unemployment, that its, its tendencies are to generate mass unemployment, That's because of the fact that it is essentially a a flawed system in which there is a lack of coordination between whatever is required as investment to keep the level of demand up and, of course, what people actually save. So there is a tendency for there to be an overproduction because demand is not enough. Keynes thought that you could actually overcome this anarchy of the system through state intervention. But the point is that that is something which really requires, I mean, the state, if you like, is an external agency that intervenes in the spontaneity of capitalism, in the autonomous behavior of capitalism, You actually introduce an outside agency, which acts to bring about certain social objectives. And Keynes did it because he wanted to preserve capitalism against the socialist threat. He had seen the Bolshevik revolution and he was clearly aware that if the state, if, if capitalist countries continued to have the kind of unemployment that they had seen in the 1930s, then of course socialism would triumph. So what he wanted is to keep socialism in check by changing capitalism, by overcoming its spontaneity, by introducing the state as an external rational agent that actually introduces measures that ensure that social objectives are met, like like full employment. The Keynesian vision imagined that the state would override the behavior of the system. But if it is the case, that the state itself is now dominated by the predilections of finance, the state cannot do anything if finance doesn't like it, then the state has got subordinated under the spontaneity of the system. You actually have a reversal of the situation from what Keynes had visualized, what had transpired in the capitalism for the couple of decades after the Second World War and what transpired after.
0: In government policy in the 1950s and 60s, Labor parties pretty much backed labor, the working class. But since Reagan and Thatcher, it doesn't much matter which political party is in power. Governments on both sides of the aisle back neoliberal policy.
1: You know, one of the things is that as long as you're caught in this web of globalized finance. You have to do what they want you to do. Tomorrow, for instance, even if you had the most extreme left government you can imagine, but that kept the country inside this movement of globalized finance, then that left government also would be adopting policies exactly similar to what the Tories or the labor or, 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 or Tony Blair would be adopting. Therefore, the point is whether you are within this vortex of globalized finance or whether you take the country out of it. Look at Greece, for instance. Syriza came to power on a certain platform, but in fact, it didn't do anything different from what the others were doing. So as long as you're within this, this web of globalized finance, then you'll be more or less coerced into doing the things that finance wants you to do. Otherwise, there'd be a crisis. So the only way to checkmate the, 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 the dictates of finance is if the country could be taken out of this web of finance through capital control, through a re-imposition of capital controls, But that, on the other hand, is going to bring about great hardships in the transitional period. Because if finance does not come in, many countries have current account deficits, and balance of payments. How do you meet those deficits? If you can't meet those deficits, and that was, for instance, it is a problem. If you cannot meet those deficits, then you cannot really import from outside. If you can't import from outside, you'd have to have import controls. If you have import controls, then then the standard of living of the domestic population would temporarily at least go down. So, so getting out of it is also very difficult. But on the other hand, if you don't get out of it, then you are caught in this web of, of globalized finance exactly what every other government is doing.
0: The Financial Times recently ran an editorial that radical reforms in reversing uh, the policy direction of the last four decades need to be put on the table. In commenting on that FT editorial, you made the point that finance capital does not voluntarily make concessions.
1: Well, you know, I mean, obviously, no matter what the Financial Times says, you will have to persuade finance that it should allow governments to, to uh, kind of, you know, put restrictions on its movements. The point is finance is not going to willingly sacrifice its ability to go all over the globe in search of profits because of the fact that some people believe this, to be necessary for reviving capitalism. You know, in in other words, finance would be looking after its own interests. Finance, you you know, these are not altruistic bodies. Finance is not, after all, going to be looking after the interests of, the supposed interests of workers or or things of that kind in order to preserve the system. It will be interested in looking after its own interests. And that being the case, I believe there would be a lot of opposition. Can the state override this opposition? One possibility, through which the state could do this. If it's globalized finance, suppose you had a globalized state, you had a global state, then matters would be different. And if you don't actually have a global state, you could have coordinated fiscal action among a lot of advanced country states. There's no talk even of that. I know that, that, that very recently the European Union has come to some kind of a little agreement on this. But on the other hand, that is still being debated. It is not a major, it is not a major factor. It is something which is also done only in the context of COVID-19. But to get capitalism going, you'd require, for instance, a coordinated fiscal stimulus across many advanced countries, and there's no talk of that. If we are talking about any given particular country, then that particular country can get out of the web of finance by putting controls on capital, particularly financial flows. And of course, that would bring enormous transitional difficulties, hardship for the people, which no government is really daring to do. Which is why capitalism is now caught in a kind of structural crisis from which there is no easy exit.
0: In times of financial crises, when government deficit spending was rolled out to preserve the financial system, it was followed by austerity to get the government budget deficit back down to the limits imposed by neoliberal policy. And that included cuts to healthcare, the consequences of which are being made all too clear uh, with COVID-19. Talk more broadly on the situation with COVID-19.
1: Well, you know, COVID-19 is coming in the context of a crisis of capitalism that was already there. COVID-19, of course, has worsened the crisis in the sense that there is huge unemployment. Let's imagine tomorrow, COVID-19 crisis gets over. If it gets over, then two things would happen. The first thing that would happen is there would be no automatic recovery because, after all, even the COVID had worsened things, When COVID disappears, consumption might recover, but recovery of consumption would not mean recovery of investment. Even if there had been no crisis in capitalism, the sheer shock of COVID-19 would have actually delayed recovery for a very long time. In other words, it would have generated a crisis that that would not have disappeared with the disappearance of COVID-19. But on the other hand, since it is already... The case that there was a crisis before COVID-19 in capitalism. Now, that crisis would again come into its own. So you would find that for both these reasons, namely recovery is problematical from such a shock anyway. And additionally, such a shock occurred in the midst of a crisis. Capitalism now is going to be finding it very difficult to to, to, to come to terms with the post-COVID world. There are two possibilities which I see opening up. You know, one possibility is, for instance, what people like Financial Times are talking about, namely that, look, you have to restructure capitalism. And this restructuring of capitalism, going back on some of these policies of the last four decades, would require control on finance and how they're going to bring, up, bring about, I don't know. But at least they are. That is one possibility. The other possibility, is that in the face of this protracted crisis there would be a tendency towards fascism where you actually try and control resentment control resistance through sheer force and that is something that we see happening in a number of countries including my own
0: but the even authoritarian governments seem to be enthralled with global finance and so they too That's right they exactly. do not have the solution
1: can you comment on that exactly yeah you see one of the big differences between 1930s and now is that fascism in 1930s is one that at least got these countries out of the crisis and out of unemployment Germany in 1933, Japan in 1931, they actually undertook large-scale military expenditures in order to generate demand and finance by borrowing, in order to generate demand whereby you actually had near full employment. As a matter of fact, therefore, there was a brief period between the coming out of the depression by these countries and the actual major start of the war when some of these fascist governments actually became quite popular because they had got the countries out of the depression and the horrors of the war still had not visited them. But on the other hand, today, you cannot do that because that time when the governments financed military expenditures, they did so by borrowing, which means by fiscal deficit. They enlarged fiscal deficit dramatically. But on the other hand, today, finance is globalized. Those days it was national. Finance is globalized, and it doesn't like fiscal deficits. It can very easily leave the country, which is why the governments cannot even undertake larger military expenditures by fiscal deficits. And therefore, they really have no way of coming out of the crisis. And therefore, the fascism of today would be much more negative in the sense that they would only be using coercive methods to keep popular discontent in check without providing any solution to the crisis that we have.
0: Commenting on the U.S. stock market boom on the back of U.S. Federal Reserve crisis management, you said a stock market boom in a real economy crisis represents the supreme triumph of finance. Talk more about the use of monetary policy and asset price inflation under neoliberalism.
1: Yes, in fact, because state expenditure would not be undertaken, and at the same time, you find that the usual monetary policy levers for generating investment don't really work. The only thing that is available to these governments is to use monetary policy to generate an asset price bubble. Now, in the past, the dot-com bubble had an impact on the real economy. They believe that if you can generate a stock market bubble, then this would have some impact on the real economy. Why does an asset price bubble have an impact on the real economy? If you are someone who holds one of these assets, whose prices have gone through the ceiling, uh, then you feel your wealth here. When you feel your wealth here, then you go and spend something. On the other hand, if you feel you're wealthier, uh, for instance, if if the financial asset price increases, then then it is e- easier for you to borrow. You know, because after all, the interest rate is the other side of the price of let's say the bond. If bond prices are high, then the interest rate is low. So it reduces the cost of borrowing. And if it reduces the cost of borrowing, again, you can you can borrow and spend more. But the point is that if investment is curtailed because there is insufficient real demand, a reduction in the cost of borrowing would not help. If it is the case that the wealth effect on consumption, you know, I mean, for instance, um, even if people may feel wealthy, they may know that, look, this wealth is illusory. Tomorrow I'm going to find myself without any kind of, you know, without this wealth. In that case, they would not necessarily spend more on consumption. The very fact that asset price bubbles work in the past in generating real demand reduces their capacity to work as effectively in future because of the fact that they have collapsed, because the collapse of the bubble makes people much more chary of actually taking the bubble as seriously in future as they had taken it in the past. But it seems to me that that is the only way in which capitalism can continue uh, trying to offset the crisis. That, that, that is the only way which is available to the various governments and which is, which is sanctioned by globalized finance. And so that is what they're going to try. I think unemployment and so on would continue to remain high. I think the uh, uh, unutilized capacities would continue. I think inequalities would become even more pronounced and so on. And all the tendencies which we have been seeing over the last decade, decade and a half, are tendencies which are going to continue, become become pronounced.
0: Earlier in the conversation, we talked about how the hegemony of finance has prevailed even over labor governments, including European Social Democrats, U.K. Labor, U.S. Democrats, and and so on. What's your prognosis going forward?
1: Because in the present situation there is a growth of authoritarian fascist tendencies, there would also be a growth within these Social Democratic, Labour, and Democratic Party of a left tendency. So so a left-wing tendency is also going to grow, uh, is going to manifest itself. And that left-wing tendency, if it gathers the courage to break with the hegemony of finance, and if it can actually mobilize substantial segments of the working class around itself and of the general population, can really find a way out. That way out, while initially it would not be a socialist way out, because actually they would be coming out of the capitalist system, can actually lead over time to going beyond capitalism.
0: You've also said, however, that the same process of neoliberal globalization that's unleashed the spontaneity of the capitalist system also results in enfeebling resistance against it.
1: Yeah, you you know, for instance, usual trade union kind of struggles, which are confined within nation states, are are, are struggles which have become increasingly enfeebled. Obviously, if a trade union demands um, higher wages, in that case, capital shifts to some other country. Unless you have international trade unionism, Unless globalization of capital is accompanied by globalization of working-class struggles, it necessarily, the case of the working-class struggle inside any particular economy uh, gets enfeebled. And that's that's what we are seeing. I mean, historically, trade union struggles were, were, were very powerful, and Britain had very powerful trade union struggles, but on the other hand now, under the globalization, trade union struggles I mean, are extremely weak. Uh, for, you know, so, and, and this is true everywhere. The trade union movement is, is, is suffering drastically everywhere. Now, on the other hand, uh, to the extent, for instance, that let's say there are growth of fascist tendencies, this growth of fascist tendencies would mean that the working class can actually come out with a political agenda of combining with democratic elements in all other classes in order to raise uh, 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 resistance against fascism. And if you can raise the resistance against fascism, you can do so only by also having an alternative economic agenda. So it's possible now to actually build coalitions, to build alliances uh, in order to uh, overcome the current conjuncture.
0: We have to leave it there. Many thanks to our guest, Professor Prabhat Patnaik, who joined us from New Delhi, India. And from Geneva, Switzerland, thank you for joining us
1: in this episode of GPE News Docs.